if you're gonna go down the chute, don't you at least want to be with people that you like? People that care about you? Hello and welcome to Pod 49, a fan recap and discussion podcast about the best show on television currently, Lodge 49 on the AMC Network. Uh, This show, this is our fourth episode. We're recapping uh, and discussing all of the episodes in Season 2. You can catch our review and recap and discussion about Season 1 if you're still playing catch-up as the first two episodes of our podcast. And let me just say, it goes without saying, but we're discussing the show, so there's many spoilers, so if you care, you haven't watched, then don't listen to this. But if you have listened to it, come join the discussion. We're down to a uh, two-person gang today with just myself and Bart. Jim is not available, but he will be back in future episodes. How you doing today, Bart? Great. Looking forward to it. I really liked episode two. What'd you think? Yeah, let's dive into it. I thought episode two was fantastic. I was tickled. I was excited. It was action-packed. I I don't know. Like, this felt... Like, obviously, it felt like the same show. I don't want to say it wasn't, like, one of those weird episodes where it feels like a totally different show. But it also did feel unique. There was, like, a kind of propulsion to it that a lot of episodes of Lodge 49 don't have. Yeah, you uh, texted me something about the cold opening, and I hadn't, I wasn't able to watch yet, and so I was kind of excited about it. But, yeah, it just, uh, it really feels like it's kind of ramping up. I have a very good, strong feeling, like you were mentioning before, that sometimes, uh, Shows can take a sophomore slump, and it just feels like we're off to like such a great start, especially this episode, just kind of like from the, the very beginning when uh, Bobby enters the the scene. Uh, yeah, it just kind of gets gets going right off the bat. It was a lot of fun. That, that's a great word for it, actually, fun. There was just so many memorable scenes, so many memorable lines. Of course, we're used to that with Lodge 49, but this one felt like even just like a little bit almost enhanced on those levels. A lot of the side characters were starting to get woven into the story even more. So it wasn't like, obviously we're focusing on a number of our leads, but there was so many great characters that were just sort of weaved in at different times, even if they were just sort of bystanders. Like uh, Paul, right? That's the the donut shop proprietor's name, I believe. Yeah, giving uh, Bowie the finger. My son, uh, yeah, my son picked that up this morning. Uh, I was watching it this morning and he came out and now he knows what the finger is because I figured, all right, he's seven. I guess I can, I can watch the show. It was only 10 minutes left to go in the show. So I just said, all right, I'm just going to watch it with him. My kids are seven. And then that, that like, they'll see something like, you know, Paul Bach giving the finger. And then next thing I know, I was, I overhear my wife saying, don't do that. You're going to get in trouble. If that, that means something very mean, you know, and he was like doing it to my daughter. So yeah, that was. (laughs) My daughter's been watching it with me sometimes too. It's, it's remarkably, they may not have any idea what's going on, but it's actually like fairly wholesome in terms of today's landscape of uh, popular culture. But yeah, I agree. Um, It's totally easygoing. Like it's not really. There's, you know, and one thing, I mean, aside from that really fun fight they get into with the pool party people, I mean, there's no violence. I mean, that's a really hard thing to kind of come across, you know, or like shocking deaths or something like that. You know, there's just a a lot of regular popular culture just has tons of violence in it, even though you get, I only really even notice it is because when they're, when when it comes to them watching it, then it kind of something that sticks out to me. But otherwise I'm totally uh, become immune to it. 
this show famously is hard to describe. That's what everyone, even Jim Gavin, the creators, the actors, and the even the very positive press. And the show's getting like a hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes score from critics and like a ninety four from fans, which is insane. But they always talk about how hard it is to describe, right? Everyone from Pat Oswalt to Jim Gavin to anybody like us who's just a fan of it. And so my wife was like to to my daughter, like, well, what's it about? And she's like, well, it's about a lodge. And it's about a brother and a sister. And then it was like, you could see her brain like dot, dot, dot. And it wasn't that she wasn't necessarily understanding what was going on while watching it. She just had the same problem that everyone else does when you actually try to explain what the show is to somebody else. Yeah, it doesn't move along the same typical lines. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why most people enjoy it. But it does make difficult to uh, have a like a log line for it. You know, like it's uh, it's a difficult thing to summarize. And that's why I think it needs to be experienced more than summarized. So hats off to our friends in the AMC PR department who have a Herculean task of trying to sell people on the show because there is no good logline. That's a great way to talk about it. All right, so we're going to jump into uh, our episode proper. You know, this is only our fourth episode and we're starting, you know, feeling our way around exactly how to do these. And our last, last week's Lodge Agenda segment, which is where we run down the plot, we went scene by scene, and uh, it probably got a little long. I think, you know, we could tell some people getting bored in their uh, fold-up chairs out there. So we're going to try something a little bit different this week and not do a scene-by-scene rundown because, of course, you watched it, right? If you're listening to this, you're kind of intimately aware of that. But instead, because we think it's important to kind of track and, and talk about key plot points, we're going we're gonna to focus on our three main characters and, uh, and the Lodge sort of as a character as well. So I'll jump in and and give a little bit of what happens with Ernie. Ernie, he starts off in a similar kind of down in the dumps as we end the first episode of season two. But in talking to Bob, you know, his boss, Brian Doyle Murray at the plumbing company, he kind of tells him a story of a old pro that life is good was his saying. And I love it. Like they said, didn't he have like four divorces and, you know, lost custody of his kids? And he's like, but he always is a sales mark. So that, that keep, drives keep the shit in the shit pipes, the water yeah. in the water pipes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. Like Ernie's like, yeah, duh. Yeah, that's how plumbing works. And, you know, and he's like, no, it's a de- Bob's like it's deeper metaphorical meaning to that. <laughs> I, yeah. we talked about this in the last episode. I'm loving Bob as like, kind of like, I mean, he's fun to laugh at and he's kind of goofy, but he's actually providing like a good amount of spiritual guidance to Ernie over these first two episodes of this season. And he sort of needs it, you know, I mean, Ernie is sort of supposed to be, you know, Dud is Ernie Squire, but uh, who is Ernie Squiring for, you know, and I think he sort of rolls his eyes a lot at Bob. And then there's obviously the implication that he's his boss and doesn't all, and gives some of the better jobs uh, to beautiful Jeff. Um, but yeah, it seems like Ernie's in a spot where he kind of needs somebody, which I think does leave the door open for Dud. I agree. And we see a little bit of that in this episode. And also Bob obviously has a lot of affection for Ernie. You know, he's trying to help him, you know? So anyway, so this life is good kind of drives Ernie through kind of a majority of the episode. And he's playing with this new kind of worldview. Um, almost like if you say it enough, it's true. And then he, you know, Bob gives him a leg up, come with me on a sales call. Er, Ernie's a notoriously bad golfer and he's whacking in a sand pit and he's getting his balls busted by the sales rep that they're trying to to woo, who interestingly enough, I don't have the character, the actor's name, but if you remember the classic John Cusack, uh, Savage Steve Holland movie, One Crazy Summer, he was John Cusack's best friend in that movie. So kind of funny little callback. I was trying to figure out, I, I definitely recognize his face. I was, I was convinced he must have been 
been on an episode of Family Ties at some point. Um, something like that. That's yeah. I'm glad you searched that out. I was thinking about doing it. Um, and you know, Ernie, it finally breaks his optimism and he throws the golf club at him and basically earns Ernie a spot on the orders desk, uh, which basically is the low rung of salespeople. You know, being on the road is definitely like kind of the, the high point. So he gets a, a large demotion from that. And that, that has him sort of spiraling. Mostly a demotion in, um, you know, I think he lives to be like a, considered himself like a good sales rep you know like he just had his balls cut off basically you know it's like that that was more about it like this is what i live for like i feel like i'm good at it you know and now i'm not allowed to do it and i'm sitting at a damn desk you know it's like just twiddling my thumbs until i actually retire yeah and i think the road part of it was a big part of his identity right listening to the books traveling around like being out on the road is a big piece of you know uh, a sit that kind of salesman's identity right the cadillac yeah so we see him at the lodge reconnecting with Dud a little bit. They kind of have an all night drinking session and there and you see a lot of their relationship starting to kind of uh, reconnect and it ends w- Well, he takes before that though, he takes Dud on his route. Oh, that's right. It's he a does a way help of him. like making up, you know, like I was saying earlier how how much Ernie loves Dud. Anyway, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I uh, it seems that like they're kind of like cuz I think that I was on the right sort of path a little bit with Ernie and Dud, but it seems that like Ernie's kind of come around to sort of say, all right, I, I have been kind of, you know, a dick to you is actually the term Dud uses or whatever. But yeah, I thought that was a really nice kind of way of um, bringing it back in from where they left off because they sort of had that weird fight in, you know, where, you know, Ernie was just kind of saying, you know, to, to Dud's ears anyways. I mean, I think as the audience, we get it, but Dud was sort of, sort of like, what are you talking about when he was complaining about how, where his life went and don't be like me and kind of Cuts out Dud, shuts the door on him. Yeah, it was a cool scene. Get back up. And like I was saying, I do think that the door is sort of open for Dud to kind of reciprocate a little bit to Ernie, which is, I think, where I I felt like they kind of got off uh, in the first season was because, like, Dud was sort of... It it seemed like he wasn't really noticing Ernie. He just was kind of, like, almost pestering him in a sense. So it seems like they've kind of, like, rebonded. I I like that, driving him around to his his new route of um, stealing pool party customers, um, giving them some sales advice. Similar to Liz and Dud in terms of like the couch in front of the TV being their like safe zone in terms of building their their characters and their relationship. You're right. Driving around in cars has been sort of like Dud and Ernie's sort of similar type vibe. So it was good to see them doing that. And so after a night of drinking, we see them emerge from the lodge. And uh, at that point, we see that Ernie's driving the van and that leads into a bit of a cliffhanger where Ernie's like, I guess it's time to tell you what happened in Mexico. So that was a bit of Ernie's arc during the episode. Would you want to handle Liz, Bart? Uh, sure. Yeah, I thought this was a big, uh, big episode for Liz. Yeah, she texts her old flame, Bobby from San Diego. Love that whole scene. When he, when he walks in in the very beginning, I, I just, I, I, I was like, is this a dream? Like, who is that guy? They, he seems to be there, but not be there. They don't seem to mention his presence, you know, like picks through the fridge, jumps in on the couch. And then, you know, and then that leads to her and Dud get to kind of like air some things out, you know, and that's when she sort of says, you know, I'm not climbing the ladder. I'm I'm, I'm riding the chute kind of goes back to her interview at Tempjoy about how she liked, you know, even was losing and, and shoots and ladders as a kid. And so now it's she's sort of accepting the fact that maybe some of these roles in the corporate world or whatever are not going to really suit her, but she's going to ride it out and get it for what it's worth. So I like the bonding between her and Dud. Um, I like the scene in the, um, she goes through the car wash, you know, she looks over, sees her mom, 
And so I like that aspect of the story. I like that they're kind of delving into their mom now, season two. Of course, she's she's fallen asleep, and that's when she, like, her elbow leans on the window, which lets in the car wash soap and water. And yeah, and uh, yeah, and then she is, uh, she watches uh, her boss get carted away by the FBI. You know, he was obviously not the uh, most gracious boss, but she's got his credit card in his car. And she's just going to take it. You know, she tries to have like a fun day with the boys, goes out with Gerzon and, and Champ. And then, of course, she gets wind that uh, Dud has been assaulted by Bowie. And then when she kind of makes up her mind that she's going to do something about it. I'm tired of seeing the Dudleys get walked on like we don't matter. And, of course, she leads the charge, uh, ramming that beautiful sedan into his giant truck, which I only wish had done more damage to the truck because it seemed like to barely affect it. But uh, yeah, I thought she really kind of came alive this episode. She's kind of, she's involved with somebody and it's like, um, you know, she seemed like with the corporate last season that she really liked him, but then she was kind of insecure about it to some degree or she can't really handle it that much. And in this episode, she's kind of like using Bobby, I think, just for, you know, sexual gain. Bone action. Yeah, some bone (laughs) action, you know, which is a human need. Yeah, she's kind of, of, um, taking her life a little bit back by the horns, I think, you know, and a little bit more in charge. And she seems to kind of get stronger because of it. I mean, there's this moment where she's really kind of tender with Dud when he's sort of explaining to her, which I think in other moments, she, based on her character, that she could maybe blow Dud off. But in this one, when he's talking about, um, sure, go down the chute if you want, but don't you want to go down the chute with people that actually care about you? And she has this real sort of like reckoning, it seems like. I give Dud a lot of shit, really, but for being for living in the past, for not being realistic and all this kind of stuff, but maybe he is on to something here. Maybe there's something I can learn from Dud instead of just needing to be the one to teach him everything, which I think she sort of innately feels is a more responsible one. I love that moment where it was a big realization for her. Well, first of all, I love the down the shoot, and that's one of those things that the show does brilliantly, right? In the Temp Joy scene, the like, I go down, I always wanted to go down the chutes and chutes and ladders feels like a throwaway line, you know, or just like a way to describe her worldview. And it's a fine throwaway line if that's the case. It did its job. But then the, this entire episode is basically built around her mentality of going down the chute. So we have, we have the, you know, this reference that could feel like a throwaway last episode that then drives almost the entire episode, if not the, the character arc for Liz. And I just, I just think that it is brilliant. And then when I think it really does land with her when he's like, don't you want to do with people you care about? Which is like, even if I'm kind of on a zigzag to nowhere, or at least a zigzag to I'm not sure where yet, relationships matter, right? I want to, you know, that doesn't mean like that. So I think it was like very quickly we see a scene with Champ and Gershon and they're deciding what to do and they're taking advantage of her credit card and car and she gets rid of the top knot, you know? So she's like, yeah, but, you know, like I, I can kind of be on this nihilist trip but that doesn't mean I have to be alone. Yeah, she does say, I think it's in episode one, I realized if I didn't have you, I'd have nobody, you know? And so, yeah, I think those things are, are starting to set in with her. You know, I think that's probably also why she's thinking a lot about her mom. So then Dud's character arc uh, and story beats for this episode are basically he's beginning, you know, he goes out with Ernie, driving around. He's beginning to, to do his sort of freelance pool cleaning. We see him kind of get a pity job and then he refuses money. And then we learn that he's refusing money all over the place and so there's there's a there's like the value of work to him that's everything but financial basically and he has a similar kind of hallucination about him and Liz swimming in the pool that kind of it sort of cut in at the same time Liz is having that flashback or that hallucination about their mother so and you know he goes on to describe that that was a big moment for him we as we talked about earlier Ernie and Dud reconnect 
um, and their relationship seems to be back on the mend. We get this great scene of him being paid in lemons and then trying to pay for drinks and pay for everybody's drinks. Dud's talking about different forms of uh, capitalism, even as he's doing it completely, you know, quote unquote wrong. I love when he, he's trying to explain, he says something along the lines of that, that's just the invisible hand of the market, Liz. And then, you know, then we get this whole joke about the lemon standard, uh, which of course is riffing on the economic theory of the gold standard. And that that's a suddenly the currency of choice at the lodge and just so many great like kind of buried jokes there. But then he he does get attacked out on his free route from Bowie. It comes out like it. I thought obviously he drives up in the truck and I thought, OK, we're going to get a confrontation. But when it just comes out, he attacked me with violence, I think was what does says to Liz. It was it was start, like it was like, whoa, OK, we're going there. So he calls Liz as we talked about that kind of gets them in a place where they have this confrontation with the pool party crew which the end result is Bowie can't handle himself and his emotions, which we've seen evidence of in these two episodes, tries to run Dud over, and Dud, in some kind of, I don't know, Matrix, John Wick, Kanona Reeves-type move, is able to make himself prone for the giant truck. Here's the value of a giant truck, I guess, going over him. So he gets underneath the tires and the undercarriage of the truck enough to survive. All of this ends with Bert negotiating a terms that have the pool party folks out of uh, the mini mall and there's sort of a victory there and no no suing and of course a great payday for Bert in the end there as well. We also get a couple more scenes with his legal advisor or they call it his legal counsel or whatever with Daphne, his lawyer in the lodge. There's some hints. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but there's some hints that Daphne may not be exactly who she appears to be. And so we get little, little nuggets there, but that's basically Dud's arc for this episode, a real victory there. It's sort of at the end. All right, so now we're going to finish up our Lodge agenda here, rundown, and we'll, we'll use this as a bit of a catch-all, and, and we'll treat the Lodge as a character in all of its various pieces. Basically, we, a lot of the Lodge storyline revolves around Scott and Jocelyn, and it's kind of interesting. We're sort of seeing, as they do mundane tasks, whether it's managing the Lodge or changing out a light bulb, which I just couldn't believe, that door that they were next to felt like so important that they it was like Chekhov's door or something, where they don't ever like like he's just like there you know kind of like floating even as they like fix the light bulb but that's an aside there's something growing between jocelyn and scott i think i totally agree um interesting thing about the door i remember it from last season and thinking it was a kind of an like an odd thing to just sort of have and when i was in cleveland over the summer visiting my in-laws i noticed there was like i passed like three different lodges and i never got the nerve to go up and knock on the door or go inside but i drove over to them and looked at them and two of them had these these very simple similar doors. I mean, they had stairs leading up to them, but they just had like, if you just got rid of the store, the staircase, you would have a, just a door in the middle of the wall. But yeah, I think the, um, the whole thing with uh, Jocelyn and Scott, it's, uh, it's sort of like, um, Jocelyn seems to be number one and Scott is kind of like underneath him in a way and there's no getting around that, but it's almost like Jocelyn is sort of, he's like a parent letting their kid win the arm wrestling match or something, you know? So he's kind of listening to him. And I think that's partly because Jocelyn has such a lonely existence that he's, it's easy for him to kind of like want to, uh, or he wants to like 
you know, pal- that's why he's attracted to Lodge 49 in the first place is the warmth of the people that are there. But yeah, like to his grand, I- Scott's grand idea is to start changing the light bulbs. And so he humors them, it seems like, and then they're going to go change this one light bulb in the back, which maybe never even gets used or turned on. It's somewhat great peril. I mean, I can't watch something like that without thinking like someone's going to fall off the ladder or something like that's why we're watching it. And just the way that, you know, Scott was sort of haphazardly holding it or something pinned under what they're, they can and can't do sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think he's sort of along for the ride and doesn't want to ruffle any feathers with Scott. But I like the, the their, and sort of, you know, getting the, um, he's getting his orders from London. And um, so, they're, they're, you know, Lodge 49 is a little bit. Uh, relationship that's building and and was correct me if I'm wrong but was Scott holding the CD-ROM when Jocelyn first walks in he's sitting at the desk and he's holding some Scott's holding something in his hand and then he like opens a drawer and like throws it in there and I I just thought that was like a nice uh, little touch if it was because it looks like a CD-ROM it looks like about the same size of a CD anyway um, so he's like wistfully thinking about where he could how he was supposed to be able to take the grand tour and he can't you know and then Jocelyn walks in. That's just another one of those kinds of things. That you, like we were saying, there's so many great little things that seem like throwaways that really kind of have great payoff. We get a little bit about the history of Scott and um, Connie's relationship. So that was some interesting tidbits we get there. Kind of like their origin story of their marriage. We also get the bar tabs continuing to be a problem. Someone has a $3,000 bar tab at this point. And so we get a lot of dry hanging out at the lodge. Uh, Of course, that's where the lemon standard joke comes into play. Uh, We also check in with Connie across the pond in London. Um, She's having these sessions with Melinda, still blindfolded. Sounds like she's having to recite and memorize a bunch of poetry and other kind of ephemera. She's developing a really, which I could I assumed was going to come, but a really deep relationship, female friendship, right? She's had all these sort of male drama and husbands and boyfriends, but she's kind of finding a female companion both in Melinda and in the Clara. I can't remember the name of the... Yeah, it's Clara. Uh, yes, okay, so Clara. So you can kind of see her rehabilitating her connection to humanity while kind of being brought on a spiritual journey of her own from Melinda to try to, you know, she says... I'm trying, this isn't helping my writer's block. And Melinda's like, you know, the writer's block is a symptom. It's not, it's not the disease. So they're working through some things there. And then of course we end, you know, the lodge is always a big character and big piece of the mysteries and the plot. And so we sort of, that ending scene with Ernie and, and Dud emerging in the bright lights of the morning to, to see the truck um, kind of takes us on that next journey. But it's also kind of a funny moment about like what actually happens in those kind of overnight bars. Uh, a lot of th- stuff going on in the lodge this week, uh, bringing me right back to my O'Connor's days. You know, I really speaking of Dud's character arc or of this of the episode where at the end he's dreaming that he's the bartender and he's serving Larry. And of course, we see Ernie and Larry's mom. They're in the booth and they're at the bar. I really, I really love that dream sequence. Larry starts off by talking about the jukebox, um, how you haven't updated the play the. This the I guess they would probably be forty five. It hasn't been updated in a while. And of course at O'Connor's that was I mean we had a CD jukebox, but that was one of my favorite things was updating it. You know taking down like ten and putting in ten new ones. Ancient back of those days I I could do. Uh, now I have a jukebox at Sidecar, but I but nobody plays it. Um, and CDs are really hard to find. The only jukeboxes they make now really are the internet ones where you um, I think you can program them to a degree. And then, but anybody could play anything at any time. 
And to me, that kind of uh, takes away from a lot of the uh, beauty of a jukebox, which should be curated by the house that's by the place that's housing it, and then um, and sort of represents you to some degree too. So this this is the kind of music that we let be played here in a sense. Uh, but you can pick from it and you can choose. But it's our you know it's uh, the same way you would choose to what color you would paint something or something like that. You know, it's very integral to the integral to the place. And uh, so anyway, I, I love Larry talking about updating the jukebox. I kind of was like, yeah, I haven't updated the jukebox at Sidecar in, uh, I don't know, five years. Mostly because no one really plays it anymore. Although I am seeing children play it, which is giving me a lot of hope. That's like, you know, it's bright and it's got buttons to push. And so kids seem to kind of be kind of like, what is this old relic? Also, the shuffleboard. I really love that little scene where Ernie and Dutt are playing shuffleboard. I never saw the shuffleboard, but we O'Connor's had one that was like all the rage, I guess, from like from what I could gather. I think the late '60s through the '70s, or maybe '70s into the '80s, or something like that, because they were definitely still some old timer regulars that would come by once in a while, and they would, you know, after a couple drinks, would kind of mention you know playing shuffleboard so uh, i just think that was something that was you know bars used to kind of well they still do i mean provide some form of entertainment and it's just like uh, it's just one of those things that just kind of sits there but people end up really appreciating over time especially when it's gone so um yeah jukebox and shuffleboards the tabs all that stuff it just um really brings me back to that whole bar culture that i just love even them stick sticking around the lodge drinking till about 8 a.m you know we had plenty of those i mean we usually got out I think I made sure to get out by 6 a.m. because I Pat was usually show up between 6 30 and 7 and I always hoped that that uh, I got out of there by 6 that would give me about a half hour 45 minutes for the smoke to decrease so he wouldn't think I just left but I'm sure he knew when he was coming in anyway in the morning and hopping in a van leaving and hopping in a van is not that unfamiliar to me either all right so that brings us to the end of our agenda we'll maybe continue to tweak how we do that Obviously, we would love feedback. You can get us at Twitter at pod49. Uh, you can also, uh, in the show notes, is uh, email if you want to email us. You know, when we were talking about this episode, one theme that really seemed to pop up a lot was this idea of daughters and parents. You know, we talked about in our last episode who exactly Ernie was looking at in that old photograph. You know, it was an old girlfriend, an ex-wife, a daughter. It's obviously an, a younger Ernie and the... Uh, it looked like that it was a younger woman, but it was very difficult to tell. And we had theorized a couple of things, one of them being daughters. And there's a scene this week where he's kind of, you know, he's kind of drunk. He's on the floor. He's kind of at a very low point where Dud comes in the bathroom and it's kind of rallying him a little bit where I, I can't remember the exact phrase, but he definitely he definitely starts to hint at someone who is lost. And it really does feel like the trend is daughter to me in terms of who was in that picture. Did, what, did you have a read on that, Bart? Yeah, I thought originally that it was his daughter, um, just based on the way that he was sort of, you know, like I, I think if a show was going to show a picture of him and an, an ex-lover, that he would be maybe holding her around the waist. I mean, there's ways people stand with people that they're romantically involved with versus the way they stand with like a daughter that they're proud of. And the way I always took it, it was just very brief, and I went back to look at it, and that's why I wasn't 100%, but I definitely always thought it was a, a father-daughter kind of thing. He looks he looks very proud, 
uh, you know, at, at, like in standing next to her. We don't know too much about his past uh, as far as like, aside from Connie and the fact that he, you know, that they dated a long time ago and kind of had to break up because of the interracial uh, nature of it. Uh, we don't really know too much else about his past and, and um, female companionship. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I felt like I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Now, definitely after what he said to Dud in the bathroom, when he said we lost her, we lost her and we never made up or something. Yeah, there's something along those lines. I can't remember exactly, too, but I think I agree. I love the way your analysis of that photograph and then the way he's obviously talking about loss of somebody. I think it's pretty we can make a, the assumption will hold that it was who he was talking about in the picture. And I, I do think that all trends go towards a, a, a strange daughter or maybe passed away. We don't, there's lots of possibilities, but she's gone. And this show, the relationship between parents and children is a huge theme of the show in general, but we get a couple, a couple more pieces in this that really look at daughters and, and fathers and parents. So the other one that's sort of more overt, and then we'll get to the, the last one, which is a little bit more metaphysical maybe, is and a little bit more theoretical, is, you know, the scene with Liz in the car wash, you know, where she basically sees an hallucination of her mother with pregnant with her and Dud, and they have this very, like, kind of connection moment. And so we learned more about the mother in the last two episodes than we did at all in season one. I mean, we just know she's not there and hasn't been for a chunk of time. That's really all we know. And you really start to feel like Liz's disconnect from her mother is part of her kind of deep depression or deep angst or deep ability to not move on. She says to Dud in the first episode of season two, like, dad never really didn't always get me. And she's kind of insinuating that to Dud, like, you don't always get me either. And that's not like a diss. It's just that I, you feel the absence of the mother, you know, kind of another female, that, that presence. And so the moment in the car wash... I really think that Liz's disconnect from that kind of her mother, female guidance, having a brother and a dad who are very similar and her feeling kind of times personality-wise third-wheelish in that, um, especially when Doug yeah. mystifies that relationship to such a degree, she feels a little bit strange. So we also get, I think that's really starting to emerge. So that's another connection, especially between uh, a daughter and a parent. Any thoughts on that scene? Yeah, I agree. It seems like with her out of the picture and she has like her dad and her brother who are very similar types um, that she feels like a lot of this pressure is on her now to kind of keep everybody straight. You know, she's sort of like the anchor to their just a little bit more fly by the seat of their pants. It's everything's going to be okay. And I think that when you're surrounded by that, then you feel an extra pressure to kind of make sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And yeah. And, and I, I totally agree with that, that a lot of her, um, maybe her depression is kind of rooted in that and that from a very early age, she kind of felt like she had to kind of pick up some sort of slack. And so where you should just be able to miss your mother, she maybe even sort of resents her to some degree, I guess, you know. But in that scene, the, the, the way that the mom had such a warm smile to her, it, it's, it's almost like it kind of broke down that sort of barrier for her in this like dream sequence. And I also thought it was kind of noticeable that I think it was just because of the way that Liz was dressed maybe but Liz like kind of looks older than her mom, which I think is a, you know, if your parent dies sort of young enough, that will happen. You know, like you, you know, if your mom died when she was 39 and you're 42 or something, then all of a sudden you're, I mean, I think that's a really weird thing to conceive of. But that was something that sort of struck me about it, how warm her mom was. I think definitely Liz is a little bit like jaded. You know, that's part of her humor. It's part of the way she approaches the world. 
And, you know, if we know that Dud and his dad were very similar and we assume that, the you know, Liz and her mom were kind of similar, you know, it makes you wonder if there's like there isn't this like warm side of Liz that we just haven't seen because of, you know, basically maybe losing her mom at a young age. You know, I think that has obviously huge impacts on children. There's a connection between that scene in the car wash and then her ability to listen to Dud about being around people that least care for her. I think that scene happens pretty shortly after that. Because you're right, there was a warm exchange. It was a different Liz for that few seconds of that scene. And I think it puts her in an emotional space to be ready to hear Dud in terms of that. I don't want to go too deep into this, but I want to put a pin in it that I don't think this is the last time we will see the woman who is there when Dud gets attacked and she she thinks Dud is the dad. I don't think that's the last time we're going to see that actress. And I actually... Lenore. There's some relationship that was between her and and Dud's father. There's a backstory there, too, that I think is going to is gonna come out over the season. They must have dated, right? I mean, that's what it seems like. Right. And was it during the relationship? It was it, uh, the marriage? Was right. it after? I think there's, a, there's an interesting little things there. Whatever they did, whether it was during the mom or after the mom's death, it seems like it didn't end very well, which is why she sort of laughs when he's like, oh, he was eaten by a shark. It seems like she laughs like, oh, that's what I wished would happen to him. But and then but then she kind of realizes that it actually did happen. I mean, it seems uh, comical when he says it in a way because who gets eaten by a shark? And it seemed like that whatever he left her life, she was like, obviously, like, screw you or something like that. So they left on bad terms or something. And then the, to hear later that he was eaten by a shark is pretty, I mean, if you had a, a, <laughs> a bitter ex-relationship, I could see why you might laugh at that anyway. <laughs> The last kind of connection on this theme of, of daughters and parents, and this is, could be wild con- wild conjecture. There's a lot of kind of debate up, out on the internet about this, but the Daphne character, the lawyer, seems to know an awful lot about the lodge. And, you know, and the sort of idea, oh, I do deep research, seems to be a little bit flimsy. We know there's all kinds of mysteries around the True Lodge, and of course we had this, the, the story last season around, like, people trying to infiltrate it. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, she knows who Blaze is right away. She knows she wants to know more about Larry. So that's an interesting in general, like where that storyline's going. Whether she is a lawyer, does lawsuit, what's her connection to the lodge? But I can't help feeling that she could be Larry's daughter. Without question, she's Larry's daughter. I mean, I uh, I think maybe especially when I was watching it a second time, I thought to myself like, oh, she almost looks like him. You know, um, she's kind of petite you know Larry was kind of a short guy I don't know there and like she's kind of has a round face like he does and I don't know yeah the, to me there was no doubt once she comes to the lodge to do the depositions and she knows all these like knowing Blaze's name was obviously like well that's weird and then when she asked him about Larry and whether he went to Mexico and that kind of stuff all seemed like very recent information that she had been like tailing him very recently so my impression is that she probably uh, whether Larry even knew he had a daughter or not, who knows, but he, um, she was out there and then she's become aware of it. And so she's done some investigating and she was sort of closing in on him maybe when he, you know, he d- died fairly abruptly in a way, very recently. And so to me, there's no doubt that that's his daughter and she's searching for him. And whether he knew she existed or not, I guess we're going to find out. But that was definitely my take and that she's, there is no case for Dud. To, you can't really sue the ocean for shark attack, I guess. I think it's pretty obvious she's not just an ambulance chasing lawyer at this point. And, you know, we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And I think it's it's Pod 49's official uh, official hypothesis at this point after episode two of season two that she is Larry's daughter. So we will track our correctness on that over the coming weeks. Obviously, as we said, there's a theme of parents and children on this show in general. 
I think this week really focused on daughters and parents and really kind of was underlining that theme pretty heavily in this episode. Other piece on this episode kind of emerging theme that we talked about is just how much of a kind of fable or this right. sort of modern telling of a kind of medieval myths and legends and quests. Obviously, the lore of the of the lodge is a big piece of that, but it's not the only piece of that. And this episode really felt, I don't know, it almost felt like the uh, Lodge 49 version of an action sequence. The whole thing with pool party, you know, the big truck is another one of these kind of mechanical dragons that have been referenced a number of times. It's, you know, Liz rising up for the, to defend her family and her community. There's a battle scene. There's actually a couple battle scenes, you know. It's the most kind of like overtly violence and action-packed episode. I am surprised that we've vanquished the pool party folks here by by the end of this episode. I did not expect that. And it almost felt like our heroes, or at least two of our heroes, getting past like an early boss, right? Like vanquishing one of the early monsters in their quest, almost showing you that they actually can prevail, even if this is not like the, the end of their large quest. But I just felt like this theme has been there forever, and this one really felt like the medieval quest aspects just are right there at the surface. Right down to the hats that um, Champion... Gerson are wearing. I mean, they almost look like court jesters. Those, um, what are they? The, the squid, the squid hats. hats. Yeah, that they got at the <laughs> um, on their adventure to the aquarium. And of course, they're, they're like taking on Bowie um, in that scene. I don't know. It was, that whole scene was a lot of fun from Liz blowing through red lights to pulling into the parking lot and wondering like what was going to happen. You know, uh, Dud is obviously hobbled with his legs or whatever, but he is very valiant knight when he pushes Alice out of the way when the truck is headed to them. So he's sort of like a hero in that sense. And also the way he kind of fell as the truck hit him sort of reminded me similarly to when uh, Liz jumped off the boat, you know, had it happened so quickly and it was kind of comical at the same time. And he's able to kind of sort of fall in a perfect plank horizontally without getting injured at all, which he sort of realizes the slow motion of it was very appropriate and kind of cool. Yeah, I really... No, it was almost... It was shot like an action sequence. Yeah. And then you have Liz jump up on the truck and pull the sign down. It was almost like, you know, it's like in a video game when you defeat the boss and you like have to go and grab that, you know, you have to go climb up the pole or even after the boss is defeated, you've got to <laughs> do, like ring the bell in some way to like finish finish the level. It totally had that vibe to me yeah absolutely we've been playing a lot of mario mark make mario maker recently at home too so the kids birthday they just got and they all got their trophies right we got the watch back we got the slide um you know which is a metaphor three ways the slide was a nice touch and that that scene was it, it was just a really brilliant scene it also was fun to see our characters win i don't think any of us are you know thinking that that's going to happen all season or whatever but you know because it's kind of about the show's kind of ethos is two steps forward one step back of life but it was really fun to see our heroes you know vanquish their their foes yeah i mean i think a lot of the show is about uh losing you know what i mean and even their presence in that mini mall you know was like a big sign of them losing sort of like oh you know we already have three shops this will be our fourth because it's the emergency emerging neighborhood and uh yeah they're absolutely hateful and the whole uh mini mall kind of I also just like that part about it, too, you know, where they all sort of teamed up. Everybody kind of agreed 
that they were sort of awful, including Herman with his uh, Aloha bitches and Paul Paul Ba's finger giving. Yeah, it's just kind of great to see them kind of come together to fight the outside influence uh, and win. Another piece that I want to just sort of track in terms of the sort of medieval lore and the quests and maybe even pointless quests and this is something that I saw in some of the season previews, but then I've noticed something in the title credits that backs this up, is there's a real Don Quixote Cervantes vibe, you know, sort of medieval times of Spain and the kind of like noble quest. I think that's going to emerge more as a plot point. And so I was already kind of thinking and looking for that. And then in the title sequence, there is actually a white silhouette of Don Quixote and Pancho Villa, his sidekick. So everyone looked at, if you don't, in the title sequence... It flips up like from the pool and you see like the silhouette cutout of what looks like to be a Don Quixote character, maybe even a windmill. So, and I don't know if that was there last season. We have to go do and do some slooping, but definitely everyone look for the Don Quixote reference in the title. I wish I had thought of that because yeah, the the whole thing feels like a Don Quixote kind of thing. You know, they're on a quest and it's kind of goofy and people. And noble at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And the, it's, it's, it's about how the, how serious the people take it. Blaze and Dud are very serious in their sort of pursuit of learning alchemy and all that kind of stuff, even though most people think that's just hooey. There's Ernie Don Quixote and like a final mission of meaning and Dud is his Pancho Villa character. This is something to, to watch for, but definitely in the title sequences, it's pretty, you know, those things go fast and sometimes you're skipping them on your DVR or whatever. But look for that reference in there. And I might even go back and see if I can cross-reference season one and two and see if that was added. Yeah, we'll continue to track this theme of the sort of the quests and the medieval imagery. But another thing that we love, talked about almost every show, is the music on the show is just fantastic. Both the song placements and the original score. So we're going to kind of quickly go through. There are five songs used in this episode. One is by The Three Degrees, um, and it's called Collage, and that's actually when Liz is having the vision of her mom. So that's The Three Degrees. Also, when Dud is talking to Daphne about Larry, we hear Flat Top Bobby and the Soul Twisters with their track, Cross Track, parentheses, Take Two. Then we get a, a modern band, Lake Ruth, who we've been interacting with a little bit on Twitter, who made their television debut with their song VV, and that's when Liz is driving Champ and Gerson around, and they're deciding what to do with this uh, short-lived influx of credit card and car. Then the just absolute great kind of 60s vibe track that plays during the action scene is the band El Gudo, and the song is I Sit and Wonder. And Bart, you even pulled out a, a lyric from that. That what, was your, what lyric did you pull from that song? The accident happens, the song kicks in, the dust is kind of settling, and then you see Dud emerging from the car with the airbag has gone off, and he's totally dazed, and it's in slow motion. And in the song, the lyric, one of the lyrics mentions slow motion. I mean, as soon as I heard the song, I was like, oh, this is great. Tipping my cap to that one. That was a nice, perfect pairing. Yeah, that's the second week in a row that a lyric from the song that they're using in this in placement actually has some connection to the the overall show. Last week they pulled a lyric for the name of the the title of the episode from broadcast, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, the team here on all fronts and how they use music is easily the best in television right now. I, no one can argue that. And then we the dud dream sequence of Larry is to Etta Jones's Nature Boy. Uh, so I believe the new artists that you can find on Spotify in this one are Lake Ruth, El Goodo, at least modern artists, and the Three Degrees, and then the sort of classics are Flap Top, Bobby, and the Soul Twisters, and Etta Jones. So uh, we will put 
links to a lot of the stuff in our show notes as we continue to track the music. And we're hoping we're going to start having some guests on over the course of the season and love to get some of these bands or the music supervisors to come talk about the amazing music. Well, we're coming almost to the end of our show, which is, of course, where we finish off with who was our alchemist of the week. I think we're in agreement on this one today, Bart, right? Yeah, Liz with that credit card and car. I mean, she just kind of, she had the job literally for two days and ends up with this card and she's able to get um, her dad's watch back. I mean, she obviously pays Bert off with it, but, um, and takes the guys out and all that kind of stuff. She's using it probably for as long as she can until it gets cut off. Um which hopefully is for a few more episodes. I always like to see these these guys having some form of money. But yeah, I think that was kind of the obvious pick of the week. How about you? Yeah, I'm in agreement. Liz easily was the alchemist of the week. We saw a lot of character growth. We saw her have some victories. We saw kind of an attitudinal change in her. I'm not saying that like she has this completely different personality or that she won't be sort of back in some doldrums going forward, but she seemed to have some internal breakthroughs and then she had the first legitimate like we've been talking about first legitimate Dudley win in the entire entire run of the show so to speak uh so Liz definitely the alchemist of the week uh if you've got other ones please tweet us at the pod 49 we've had some pretty good back and forth there has been no disagreement that Liz was was the alchemist of the week so I don't know if we're going to get much divergent views on this one but that is who we are knighting as as our alchemist of the week this week let's get us uh get one pre one uh, prediction for next week I'll predict that Connie contacts either Scott or Ernie I'll say Connie contacts Scott I think we're going to get a significant piece of information about one of these daughter relationships, you know, that we've talked about. Sort of is Daphne and is there a connection there? Ernie and his daughter, maybe that comes out like as part of the Mexico reveal to Dud or maybe more information about the mother Dudley and the connections there. So I think we're going to, uh, I think this week set up some kind of, reveal about one of those three relationships between uh, a daughter and their parent. So we will see if we are right. We'd love to hear some of yours. Of course, you can get us at the pod 49 on Twitter. We're also starting to connect in a lot of different fan spaces. There's a great Facebook group called uh, Lodge 49 Fan Group if you want to connect there. And of course, you can email us through. You'll see the email address. I'm not going to announce it here, but you can see it in the show description if you need to give us a direct contact. But that brings us to the end of the episode two, season two recap. We'll see you next week at band night. Mm-hmm.